turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. You know, I, I love the Christmas season. I love all the things that come along with it. It's, it's a really fun time of year. And, and what makes Christmas, you know, really extra special is the different traditions that we have. Like, there are certain things we know that you probably do in your family, like clockwork, every year. You've been doing it for a long time. And, and there are some traditions that I understand. We spend time with family. We eat good food. We sing songs and look at lights. Those make logical sense to me. But there are some traditions that I do not quite understand. Like you got to admit, there are some Christmas traditions that are a bit unusual. Like, I'm wondering, how did this start? Who, who came up with this? For example, let, let's just start with the obvious. Who was the first person to cut down a tree and put it in their house? Like, I'm imagining the way I see it going down is some husband who really wants to make the holidays special, and he hasn't been the best husband to his wife lately, so he's trying to think of something, you know, nice to do for her. And he thinks, you know what? I'm going to go cut down a tree and put it in the house. <laughs> He's going to love it, right? And he does, and he cuts it down. He brings it in the house, and his wife's like, what are you doing with the tree in the house? And he's like, this is for you, babe. <laughs> I want to do something special. That's a tree. What are we going to do with a tree in our house? Well, why don't we, you know, put some lights on it, some little trinkets we can hang on it. It's a tree in the house with, like, bugs and animals. Isn't that kind of strange? Okay, so that's, that's probably not how Christmas trees became popular. But that's a story I like to tell myself. I love, I love having a tree up, having the lights. Anybody have a real tree? We, we do the fake tree in my house. You're brave if you do the real tree. That you, you really love Christmas. But I still think it's a little bit unusual <laughs> to put a tree in your living room. There's also hanging the stockings from the mantle, from the fireplace. Who started having their laundry hung on the mantle? Think about that. Who did that? And then they decided, hey, let's put some stuff in there, right? And let's surprise everybody. It's a little unusual. And don't get me started this morning on the mistletoe, ugly sweaters, fruitcake, elf on the shelf, eggnog, and the weirdest song of all time, which is the song 12 Days of Christmas. I'm sorry. Look, if someone were to get me swans, geese, hens, doves, and a partridge in a pear tree, that would be a little much, okay? And not to mention, I still don't know what a Yule log is. Anybody know what that is? I don't know. My point is... Many of these things that we do, they've become traditions. We've accepted them. We don't stop to think about where they came from or how they got here or how unusual they might seem to someone who's never celebrated Christmas before. And, you know, the, the biblical Christmas story in Scripture is really not much different. I think we tend to, to do the same thing. We, we've heard it so many times. We become so familiar with it that we, that we miss how truly unusual this story is. We saw last week in our very first week of Advent that an angel appeared to two different people to announce an unexpected pregnancy. The first was a guy named Zechariah. He was a priest and he was pretty shocked because he and his wife were of a significant age. It's a nice way to put it. And he had not, they had not been able to have kids. The other one was a young girl named Mary who was even more shocked because, well, she was a virgin. She was saving herself for her future husband, Joseph. But what made these two pregnancy announcements even more unexpected was what the angel had to say about these two boys. One named John was going to make people ready for the coming of the Lord, like God coming here to us. That seems like a big deal. 
until we learn that the second baby named Jesus was God coming to us here. He was the Savior of the world. So this whole scene, it's meant to be startling and surprising because although the people of God were looking for a Savior and salvation, no one saw things unfolding this way. This morning, we're going to continue walking through Luke's account of the coming of Christ with a message titled, Behold the Unusual. Look with me at Luke chapter 1. Let's read verses 39 through 45. In those days... Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a, with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. We can only imagine here the emotions that Mary must have felt when she heard the news from the angel. I'm guessing that she probably wanted to talk to someone. That's typically what we do when we find out something crazy. We want to talk to someone. So it seems that one of the first things she did was go talk to her older and wiser relative, Elizabeth. Elizabeth had also been mentioned by the angel, so I'm sure she wanted to see for herself that Elizabeth was indeed pregnant too by a miracle. So Mary enters the home, and as soon as Elizabeth hears Mary's voice, did you, did you see what happened? The baby leapt, leaped. Is it leaped or leapt? Leapt, thank you, leapt in her womb. We talk about beholding the unusual. If you've had kids like I have, I've felt my kids kick in the womb. Like I've been pretty startled with a, with a kick. I, have not, I don't know what I would do. Like leaping is another level. John the Baptist, before he's even born, he's already fulfilling his purpose. He's doing what God called him to do, to announce the coming of Jesus in the womb. Strange. We also see that Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, which is also incredible. We know today all of us as believers have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, but this was before that. Not everybody had this kind of experience with God. So, so God moves in her in this, this special way, and she cries out this prophetic word about Mary. She says, Mary, you're blessed by God. And most importantly, she identifies Mary as the mother of her Lord. Did you see that? This language is really significant because that word Lord in the original language of the Bible, it's the same word we see in the Old Testament for the word Yahweh, the name of God. So Elizabeth is, is identifying Jesus as being God. How did she know this when Mary had just gotten pregnant? Elizabeth knows this because God has revealed it to her. She's been filled with the Holy Spirit and her immediate response in this situation is to bring praise to Jesus as Lord. Again, imagine this young virgin girl hearing her older, wiser relative, probably someone she had looked up to for all of her life, saying all these great things about her and her baby. What was going through her mind? What was she thinking and feeling? Well, thankfully, we get a little insight into Mary's heart. Luke actually recorded for us Mary's response as she breaks out into what many historians believe was a song. It's come to be called the Magnificat. You might see that heading in your Bible. That title is based on the first word in the Latin translation, which is Magnificat. That means magnify. 
And this song is interesting. It's, it's not exactly what you might expect from Mary. It's a bit unusual because it, it kind of flies in the face of how we typically view and think of Mary. Mary in the nativity scene is often portrayed as being this silent, sweet figure. She's calm and composed, and she's just going with the flow, but she doesn't really know what's going on. But here, we get a very different view of Mary and her response. Famous German pastor, uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, he said this in a sermon on this very text. He said, this song of Mary's is the oldest Advent hymn. It is the most passionate, most vehement, one might almost say most revolutionary Advent hymn ever sung. It is not the gentle, sweet, dreamy Mary that we so often see portrayed in pictures, but the passionate, powerful, proud, enthusiastic Mary who speaks here. None of the sweet, sugary, or childish tones that we find so often in our Christmas hymns, but a hard, strong, uncompromising song of bringing down rulers from their thrones and humbling the lords of this world, of God's power and of the powerlessness of men. That's a strong statement about Mary's words here. And let me show you what he's talking about. I just want to read this song to you in full, and then we'll break it down. Look at verses 46 through 56 of chapter 1. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has sown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Notice, Mary's not confused about what's going on. Remember, this is a young, poor, teenage girl, and yet she's not naive or scared or calm, so we can finally answer that famous Christian song, yes, Mary knew. <laughs> Mary did know. She did. Like She seems to know more than anyone else in this whole story what God's doing because she's connecting her present experience with what she's learned from the Old Testament. Mary's not inventing something or making something up new. She sees God's story being woven throughout history, and she's actually quoting and alluding to many different verses from the Old Testament, especially... She's thinking of Hannah's song from 1 Samuel 2. Do you remember Hannah? That was Samuel's mother. She was also childless, unable to get pregnant like Elizabeth, being abused by other women because of her shame. She goes to the temple and cries out to God with this incredible prayer, and God gives her son, Samuel, and she gives him to the Lord. I want to encourage you this week in your, in your quiet time, go look at 1 Samuel 2, Hannah's song. And Mary's song in Luke 1, I want you to compare those two. This should really strike us that when Mary is pressed, Scripture comes out. You see that? She's not quoting word for word necessarily, but it's clear that Mary is so steeped in the Word of God that she studied it and memorized it to a point that when she's moved to praise, Scripture comes out of her mouth. 
And this is a great example for us to exemplify. You know, one of the greatest tools I've learned for my prayer life is praying the Bible. (laughs) This is taking the word of God and using it to form your prayers back to him. It's really helped me. It's helped to freshen and deepen my my prayer life. And, And it just so happens that the guy who wrote a book called Praying the Bible is coming to our church. So I got a shameless plug for you this morning. The 5S conference you've heard about in January. If you have not signed up, you need to do it. Okay? Because we're going to learn a lot about this topic from the man himself. He wrote the book. He, as he's going he's to explain to us, as we see, this is a biblical pattern. The, the word of God that Mary's hidden in her heart, it comes out in praise to God. And this praise has three parts that I want to show you. Look with me first. Mary shares what she's feeling and experienced. Look at verses 46 and 47. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. All right, this is the key to understanding Mary's heart. She says her soul, the, the depth of her being, this is her heart. She's magnifying the Lord. What does it mean to magnify something? Well, it means to glorify, to, to show the greatness of what something is. And this is Mary's heart. She's not primarily concerned with herself. Right? She's not pitying herself because things are going to be hard. She's not congratulating herself for how special she is. She wants people to see how great God is. And she does this by the second line, by rejoicing in God, my Savior. You know, we glorify God when we rejoice in who he is. God looks great when we find our joy and life in him. And the greatest joy we have, as Mary says, is knowing that God is our Savior. Now, I believe Mary was a very important person, someone we should study and know from Scripture. I I believe she's an example. She's an encouragement to us, and and we should, as Luke 1 says, call her blessed. But look, we know that some people in the church have kind of taken things a little farther than that. Uh, Most notably, the Catholic Church esteems Mary to the point that they actually pray to her. And they don't view her as God, but they view her as accepting their prayers and taking them to Jesus on their behalf. There are also teachings that Mary lived a sinless life, that she remained a virgin forever, and even that at the end of her life she never died, but she was taken straight to heaven like Elijah. Guys, these are teachings I hope you know that are not found in the Bible. And we see Mary herself tell us the opposite. She admits that she too needs a Savior just like us. And I think this is more encouraging than thinking Mary was perfect or somehow got assumed into heaven. Mary was just like us. She was a sinner too. She was human. She had struggles. And yet she was used by God to perform or to be a part of one of the greatest miracles ever. So while we don't pray the rosary or pray to Mary, we can still honor her and follow her example because she saw God as her Savior and she glorified him with her life. That's the first part of the song. And the second part, Mary expresses what God has done for her. Look at verses 48 and 49. She says, he's, he's looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Mary praises God for the work that he's done in her. He's looked on her humble estate. Notice those words, humble estate. Again, we're reminded that there's nothing particularly significant about Mary to warrant God picking her to be the mother of Jesus. She wasn't wealthy or well-known or powerful. She was a young, humble girl, and yet God has chosen to look on her. 
as a result, since all generations will call her blessed. That includes us. We're here today. We continue to point to Mary and to learn about her. And and she points us to the might and the holiness of God. She understands God is all-powerful. He can do anything. She understands God's holy, that he's separate from everything else. He's unlike anything else. So Mary expresses who God is and what he's doing. That's the second part. And then the third part of her song, Mary praises God for what he's done in the past and what he continues to do today. And this is the part that's a little bit unusual. Look at verses 51 through 53. She says, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Again, this is Old Testament language. Mary is hitting on a huge theme of the Bible that we often miss. It's that God is turning things upside down. God is reversing what we might expect. He's doing the unusual. And this is the part that kind of stirs people up sometimes. In fact, that I read in history, there are some governments around the world who have actually banned Mary's song from being read in public because these words resonated with people they wanted to keep oppressed. You know, and still today, because we live in a hyper-politicized culture and everyone has to have a label, we hear any talk of caring for those in need or helping the poor or the marginalized, and we think that's liberal. Or some people say, oh, that's that's woke. Friends, that's nonsense. A major theme in the Bible is God's heart for those in need. Whether that be the poor, the hungry, the oppressed and mistreated, the orphan and the widow, the sojourner, we see it over and over again. God loves and he's drawn to people who are beat down and downtrodden and mistreated. That's not political. God is a God of justice and care for all people, especially the people who need it the most. And no one demonstrated this better than Jesus, who is God. (laughs) He gravitated towards lepers and prostitutes and the poor. He fed, he healed, he lifted people up. And he called for us to care for the least of these. You know, I think sometimes we get so bent on keeping the root of the gospel central that we miss the fruit of the gospel. Like we want to make sure that we know the root of the gospel, the message that Jesus says. We don't want to add anything to that. But when you have the root of the gospel, there's going to be fruit from the gospel. You got me? There are going to be implications for how we live, how we spend our money, how our marriage is, how we treat our family, how we work at our job. And one of the fruits of the gospel we see in the Bible is a care for people in need. In fact, the Apostle Paul, the gospel man himself, and we've seen it in Romans, said that remembering the poor was an essential part of his ministry. He said this in Galatians 2, 9 through 10. He said, when James and Cephas and John... Perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Listen to this. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Did you know that was a part of Paul's ministry? He preached the gospel, he planted churches, but he was eager to help the poor. My point in all of this is that Mary's song is unusual because she is sharing with us the unusual heart of our God. We have a God who does not prioritize the rich, the powerful, or the famous. He will instead bring those people down and send them away empty. He will humble the proud and the haughty who think they have no need for God. And he will draw near and exalt those who are low and needy. God gravitates to the lowly 
to the humble. He uses the weak to shame the strong, the foolish to shame the wise. And Mary knows this because she's living proof. She's young, poor, an unknown virgin girl, and yet out of all the women to carry the Messiah, out of all the experienced or wealthy or privileged mothers that God could have chosen, he chose her. Why? Because God's flipping the world upside down. He does the unusual, the thing no one would expect. While we prioritize strength and power and charisma, God displays his glory the most through the least likely people. This is the heart of the Bible, which is why Mary concludes with this reference to to God's covenant with her people, Israel, through Abraham. She understands that God's doing what he's always done. He's fulfilling his plan. She, She knows. Again, she knows that she's about to see firsthand the greatest miracle that's ever taken place. And she did. Mary lived during the most significant 30-year period in the history of the world when God turned everything upside down. So as we close our message this morning, I want to share with you quickly two things we learn from this passage as we behold the unusual. Here's the first. Number one, we see that God's ways are unusually personal. I shared last week that Luke opens his gospel story after 400 years of silence in the nation of Israel. 400 years. There's been no prophet, no king, no word from God. And God enters the story. After all this time, he steps in in the most personal way possible. He comes to people who were beat down politically by the Roman Empire, people who were hopeless for any change. And right in the midst of those people, he doesn't choose the religious leaders. He doesn't choose the well-off or the well-known. He chooses to visit this young Jewish girl and her family. He brings to her the miracle of life in the most impossible way, and he uses her to rock, to feed, to care for the most important person who would ever walk this planet. Our God is an intensely personal God. He's not sitting back in heaven in his rocking chair just watching things happen. He did not wind up the world like a clock and let it go. His arms are not folded. He is not distracted. He is not too busy, and he is not distant. Our God is here. And he's intimately involved in the details of our lives. He is actively working in all things to the glory of his name and the good of his people. Even when we don't see it. Even when we can't feel it. Luke later records these words from Jesus in Luke chapter 12 verses 6 through 7. Jesus said this, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. God knows every sparrow, every bird in the sky, and he's numbered the very hairs on your head. Think about that. That's how close and involved God is in your life. He knows every single hair on your head, even those who are losing theirs like mine. And Christmas is the ultimate display of our personal God. That he would leave his throne and come here to the earth to take on a human flesh and experience all the pain and difficulty and challenges of being human and the pain, you know, from the manger to the cross. Jesus is the epitome of a personal God who loves and cares for people. So this Advent season, 
Don't lose sight of what God wants to do in you personally. Jesus came and lived and died for you. And he wants to know you. He wants to work in your life. That's the heart of the story of Christmas. That's the whole point. What is God doing in your life personally? Where is he working? What is he teaching you? How is he blessing you? How is he growing you? How is he challenging you? Use this season to behold an unusually personal God. That's first, and here's the second takeaway from this passage. We see that God's ways are unusually powerful. We see God's power in this story, babies leaping in wombs, virgins becoming pregnant, but we also see Mary telling us about God's power in some big ways. God is redeeming and saving his people through Jesus. He's visiting those who are in need and he's giving them new life. He's scattering the crowd and the, the proud and judging those who think they're up high. And he's using those who are forgotten and overlooked to display his glory. See, God loves to take broken situations and, and display his healing. He, he delights in taking what seems small and insignificant and displaying his power. When you are at your lowest point, listen to me. When you are at your lowest point and you feel helpless and powerless and hopeless, that is the exact point when God comes closest. When you feel like you've got nothing left to give and don't know what to do or where to turn, God says, finally, there's someone I can work with. In situations where we might walk away or give up or shield our eyes or cast it off as hopeless, these are the very situations that God enters into and transforms. This, again, is the heart of the Christmas story. Jesus enters the world in a miraculously powerful way, and yet it's completely ordinary. So how might God want to display his unusual power through you this Advent season? I got one idea we can think about today. If God exalts those of humble estate, if he fills the hungry with good things, then maybe we should too. If Jesus came to seek and save the lost, we should too. If God cares for the least of these, we can and should too. I challenge you to think of a way this Advent season to think less about yourself and more about those who are in need. The poor, the hungry, the hurting, the beat down, the overlooked. How can you display the power of God to them? How can you show them the love of Christ? Look, we can share Jesus and the hope of the world with the lost. We should, but we can also give our money to people in need. We can spend time serving at a nonprofit or a homeless shelter or a ministry. We can reach out to a neighbor or a family member or a friend who we know is struggling and going through a difficult time. It's unfortunate that Christmas has become such a consumer-driven, self-focused time for many people. We think about food and presents and spending money we focus on ourselves and our own families it can't be that way for followers of Jesus it shouldn't be that way Advent is a time to be different it's a time to be like Christ to give rather than take to lift up rather than push down to glorify God rather than self to run to the broken rather than away in the world's eyes this will seem a bit unusual. This will seem contrary to them. But that's exactly what we want. Because then we have an opportunity to tell about our unusual God. 
who works in unusual ways to save sinners like us and who wants to redeem and transform all things for his glory. That's what Advent is about. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer.